And so happy, happy new year. Uh, I hope you all are off to a good start to 2019. It's the first Sunday of 2019. And as we begin today, um, I, I wonder how many of you, 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 you broach the, the new January season and you're mindful of resolutions, you're mindful of fresh starts and new beginnings. And I wonder how many of you in here today, that's especially true for you, right? You just need a new beginning, right? You need a fresh start. And, and the reason I bring that to our attention is because I, I don't want us to, to rush past the significance of what really compels us to come each and every week, right? That, that we serve a God, we, we are a part of this gospel message that allows you to look back on everything in your life. Right, you could look back on 2018, you could look back beyond that, and maybe you come in here today and you are mindful of all those mistakes, you're mindful of all those failures, right? all those things that continue to plague you, those things that just eat away at you. Maybe, maybe you need a fresh start at a new beginning because you've been overcome with grief because of a loss of a loved one, or you've, you've been just shackled by all these challenges and all these hardships. In the good news that brings us back week in and week out is that we serve a God who makes all things new, right? That's the gospel that allows you to take all of that heartache, all that concern, and allows you to sit there today and recognize that the message is the old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation. That's why we're here. We're not here to play church Right, we're not here just to, to sing a few songs and exchange some small talk. We're here to worship the God that makes all things new. And that should erupt and evoke some amazing sense of praise and devotion within each of us today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and celebrate this God who makes all things new. Father, we love you. We love you that you, you send us into this world with brothers and sisters that help us carry each other's burdens, that help us pursue you and follow you. And as we start off this new year, we do so mindful and in awe of the fact that the old is gone and the new has come, that each of us has the opportunity to embrace this opportunity, to embrace this promise to be a new creation. And so may we embrace it fully, God. May we not minimize it. May we not take it for granted, but may we give you everything that we are so that we can worship you in the way that you deserve in the way that brings glory to you and to your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, happy new year, y'all. Hey, guess what? The Cowboys already have a playoff victory in 2019, huh? Can I get an amen? Starting the year off right. And you, we can go extra long today because they've already played, right? You don't have to worry about getting out of here in time. for Anyway, um, just kidding. So uh, it's January. <coughs> and so let me kind of give you a reminder of, of where things start for us. We're starting a new series next Sunday. I really hope you guys get, get to join us with it. And, and I, I kind of teased it a little bit last week, and I guess the way that I would summarize what this new series is about is really just talking through foundations in the sense of there are just some foundational beliefs that we need to constantly go back to and be reminded of. Uh, and so we're going to start this, this series in Genesis. And, and part of the reason Genesis is so critical, right, you, you have to understand the beginning to understand the middle and the end. And, and so we go back to it with an opportunity to see who God is, right, and his sovereignty, how, how we were made, why we were made, the relationships that we have with one another, and then the problem that, that started it all, right, the problem of sin. And, and so these are foundational 
beliefs. And we're going to start that journey next week, January 13th in, in Genesis. I'll, I'll introduce that. Now, I'm going to be gone a couple of Sundays in January, but we've got some great uh, speakers lined up to kind of navigate that with us. And so I, I want you guys to continue to, to, to go on that journey together. <laughs> you can go ahead and start reading through Genesis. Uh, we're going to be gone bringing our little one home from China. So be praying for our family. We're super excited about that. We leave on the 17th. And so we we appreciate your prayers. Um, now, before we get to that series today, we're finishing this little mini-series that we started last week, which was this, this, just a quick little glance at Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And so last week, we, we read Galatians 6, verse 1, and, and kind of the premise behind the discussion was, how do, we, how do we really practice this call to love your neighbor as yourself? Like, how do, how do we do that well? And one of the first things that Paul gives us very practically in this letter is, is when someone's caught in sin, right? When we fall, when we stumble, right? We seek restoration, right? Our response when, when people are plagued with sin, when there's shortcomings, when there's failures, is, is to restore those people, to equip them, right? And where does that restoration take place? It takes place within the body of Christ, those who live by the Spirit. But the, the point of emphasis we really tried to, to drive home last week is the, the way in which it's done, the manner in which it's done, the posture in which it's done, right? That we seek restoration through a careful and gentle posture, right? That was kind of the invitation to what we've been trying to do to transition from 2018 to 2019 is, is how do we do this well together? How do we love our neighbors ourselves? And Galatians 6.1 kind of gave us that, that early introduction to it. And so we're going to continue that discussion a little bit further today by looking at verse 2. But before we do, uh, I want to start the new year off right. I want to have a poll, right? I like to do these from time to time. I like to see kind of the makeup of the congregation. And so I'm curious, um, how many of you out there today would say you're early to bed people, right? Like 9.30, 10 o'clock, you're like, that's it, I'm done, I'm getting my sleep, need my seven or eight hours. If I don't get my hours, like don't meet me in the morning, don't talk to me, right? Because I, I need it. Um, how many of you are the other? How many of you are night owls? Let me see your hands. All right, 10 o'clock rolls around, you're like, man, we're just getting going, right? We got so much that we can still get done. So it's a pretty even split in our, in our <coughs> congregation here. And, and I would say when Jennifer and I got married, it was kind of like those two worlds colliding, right? It was a little bit of a house divided. She was definitely a little bit more towards the early to bed uh, mentality. She wanted her seven or eight hours, and, and I was a little bit more of the night owl. And so there was the question of like, how is this going to work? You know, how are we going to make this gel in marriage? And so I will tell you, 14 years in, after fervent prayer, and consistent outreach and evangelism. I have officially converted her to night owlism, and it is amazing, right? Her testimony is beautiful. And now we stay up late watching endless hours of Netflix, being incredibly unproductive, okay? And so we, we both embrace the night owl mentality. Now, the thing that I've always said about being a night owl for me was not just that I was a night owl, but that I was a night owl that could still get up early. And, and there have been significant seasons and stretches in my life where I still will wake up early for whatever reason, and, and really kind of pride myself on not requiring a whole lot of sleep. And, and this was really pronounced, I think, uh, and I really became more aware of it and cognizant of it in college. And because college, everybody stays up late, or at least seems to. I did, for sure. But I had a job that required me to get up around 5 or 5.30. And so there was uh, about a year and a half, two years, where I was on average bringing in about three to four hours of sleep. Okay? And I thought that was a good idea. And I thought that was healthy. But what it did is it exposed some of those limitations that, that happens when you limit how much sleep you get. And for me, you really saw that limitation around kind of the 2 to 5 o'clock time frame in the afternoon, right? Because if I got to that time of the day and I was stagnant 
and, and I didn't have something to do, I would crash. I mean, it was just like the power off button. Just, you know, I would be done. I couldn't go to the library, right? If I had a class in the early afternoon, more often than not, I would fall asleep in class. My mom was very proud of me for that, being a teacher and everything. Um, and so I, I struggled with it. Where it really became dangerous was whenever I would drive in the road trips that you would take a lot of times in college. And if I had to happen to be on a road trip in the middle of the afternoon, we're going to have to edit this part of the sermon out so my parents don't listen to it. Uh, it was dangerous. Like, I can't tell you how many times I actually fell asleep while driving my car. Uh, I remember one time, I think it was either late high school, I think it was my senior year of high school, maybe freshman year of college, I was driving home to Abilene to see my family. It was in that, that kind of dangerous time zone, and I fell asleep. Like while driving on the highway, I woke up and I wasn't like veering out of the lane. I wasn't in the shoulder. I was completely all four wheels off the road going through the grass. Like I I looked out the passenger side window and I could see like the barbed wire fence just right there, you know, and I was going about 40 or 50 miles an hour. Thankfully, I didn't panic because I was sleepy and and I didn't just like, you know, overreact or anything, but I slowed down and I got back on the road and it woke me up like crazy. And I can't tell you how many times things like that happened. Like, I constantly fell asleep um, driving by myself. Well, now, when I go on a road trip 14 years later, I still have that same problem, right? I still have that same limitation. I get drowsy. Uh, The difference now is that I've got people with me, right? And I got kids in the back wanting to watch shows and things like that. And so when I start getting drowsy and I'm, like, shaking my head to kind of wake up or slapping myself, the the better approach and what seems to be fairly foolproof is I just turn to Jennifer. I'm like, hey, I need help, right? Talk to me for a little bit. And she'll talk to me, and, and her conversation keeps me awake. And in a really dire situation or circumstance, we'll just, we'll just trade spots. And, and guess what? That's a much safer and better way to go about it, right? So, so I paint that picture for you because of this. It reminds me of this quote that is often attributed to be like an African proverb, right? He who travels fast travels alone. He who travels far travels together. And, and that, to me, is a great picture, right? I would go on these road trips by myself, and I would try to handle this limitation, this, this challenge that I would carry, and it was very precarious. It was dangerous. But now when I travel with others, I'm better able to manage it. We, we have a safer and, and more likely chance that we're going to arrive where we need to be. Listen, that's life. And that's the picture I want us to, to cling to today. Life is a journey that's going to consistently make us cognizant of and aware of our own limitations, our own shortfalls, our own struggles, our own inabilities. And if we try to navigate those things on our own, it's going to put us in difficult situations. But if we travel together, right, if we do this together, well, then, well, then we're going to get to where we need to be in a much safer and a much better place. And so the picture we need to cling to today is how do we do that? How do we go through life traveling together? And Paul gives us a great example of that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 6, and we'll continue along here. I actually want to read verse 1. We're not going to really dive back into verse 1. We've done that already, but I just like the flow of it. Because again, this is Paul trying to put practical expressions to how do you live out this gospel? How do you, how do you embrace the fruits of the Spirit? What does this look like? And he's, he's really exemplifying the relationships that we have with one another. And so starting in chapter 6, verse 1, we'll we'll read verse 1 again, but we're going to focus on chapter 6, verse 2. So follow along with me. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, let's, let's really dive into that second verse. And the way I want us to begin this conversation is to think through the way that it ends, right? To fulfill the law of Christ. I want to make sure that we actually kind of give uh, the appropriate amount of consideration to what is the law of Christ. How do we complete it? How do we fulfill it? And anytime you begin to open up the scriptures and you have a conversation about the law, which is, is very um, heavily referenced in the, this letter to the Galatians, uh, we need to kind of think through the context, right? Here's, here's the context. Let me give you a brief overview of the law and how we begin to understand the law in light of Christ, right? So, so the way that the story begins, obviously, is that God extends this promise to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through you. And so he establishes this promise. And, and with that, we see that part of the promise is that God wants for himself his own people. And so as he begins to fulfill that promise, one of the things that happens is he gives his people the law. Right? He, he brings them up out of Egypt into Exodus, and he gives this law to Moses. And what does that say? That's, that law is a way for God to mark his people. You're going to look different. You're going to live differently so that people can see you belong to me. This is how I want you to live. And the message to his people was pretty clear. The law didn't just cover a few elements of life. It was everything. It's how you ate. It was how you related to one another. It was about money. It was about work. It was about everything. And so the message was your whole life belongs to me. Everything should be marked by the fact that you are mine. That's what the law sought to accomplish. And so from generation to generation, right, this was how people were known as God's people. They followed this law. And so what happens when Jesus comes along and changes everything? Right? How does that change the understanding of the law? Well, this is what Paul gives great attention to in several of his letters. Okay, so I want to just quickly summarize for you part of what he says in Romans and then a little bit of what he says in Galatians so that we can understand the significance of verse 2. Right? So, so when you get to Romans chapter 1, Paul begins to give us an insight to what Jesus has accomplished. And he starts by taking us back to creation saying, listen, from the very beginning, God has made himself known. His, his divine qualities, his eternal nature, they've all been put on display so that men and women are without excuse. Right? We can all see there is a creator, just like Matt was talking about in worship. We can all point to these things. The problem is that people neither gave thanks to God nor glorified him, but rather they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for created things. Right? That's the reference to the, to the separation, to the rebellion, to the sin. And now there's this, this distance between the creator and the created. And as a result, what happens? He gives us over to our sinful desires. And so now you look in existence, you look in the hearts of, of mankind, and you see shameful lust, you see wickedness, you see evil, malice, anger, dissension, all these lists that Paul describes in Romans 1. So the law comes about to give us an understanding of what's right and wrong, right? This is the way to live. This is the way in which you should conduct yourselves. And so he's talking about that, but the problem is that the law was only given to Jews. And now in Christ, we have Jews and Gentiles coming to faith, and it's creating this collision within churches. And so Paul begins to address this collision, and he begins to remind me, he says, listen, those of you that think you're superior to the Gentiles because you have the law, let me remind you of a couple of things. Number one, some of these Gentiles still follow the law because it's been written on their hearts. 
right? Even though they don't know it, they're still living in a certain way that they should because God wrote that law in their hearts. But let me also remind you, those of you that think you're superior to the Gentiles, you think you're superior because you can teach them what this law says, but have you taught yourselves? You say don't steal, but do you steal? You say don't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? And he goes on and says, listen, the real verdict here that we see by looking at the law is that no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he, he builds on this, and he says, so here's what the law really does. This is Romans chapter 7. What the law really does is make us conscious of our sin, right? How would you know what coveting was until the law said, do not covet? But now not only has it created awareness, but it's actually awakened every covetous desire within you. And so the law makes us aware of this sin and of these sinful tendencies, which leads us to the hope that we have, this beautiful, powerful verse in Romans 3, where Paul says, but now a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. A righteousness to which the law and the prophets testify. He's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to the gospel that there is a new way for us to be found righteous in God's eyes apart from the law. And so you pick up Galatians, and this is what Paul's main theme is, right? We talked about this, that salvation is found in faith alone through Christ Jesus. And so when Paul starts writing Galatians, he starts talking about the gospel, and in chapter 1, what does he say? He says, now listen, you need to, li- to remember this gospel that was teached to you. If you begin to hear another gospel from anyone else, let that person be forever under God's curse. And so I, wanna, I don't want to just run by that statement. The reason I'm going to great lengths to explain the history of the law here and for us to, to really dive into this is because you and I have to understand there are many other gospels that are constantly proclaimed. We have to know with a, a, a vigor and with a passion and with a conviction what the gospel is. Right? Too many times, sadly, within churches, within the community of saints, we have this me-centered, watered-down, prosperity-driven gospel that is not the gospel. And Paul's clear, you start buying into that, man, you're buying into something. Those folks need to be forever condemned. Know the gospel. And so Paul begins to reiterate his own conversion experience, and he speaks to the tension of what this new salvation we have in Christ Jesus does in connection to the law. And he speaks to it through this interaction that he has with Peter, also known as Cephas, that's referenced here in chapter 2 and 3. So here's the exchange. Right? All of a sudden, Jews and Gentiles are getting together because this is what happens with the gospel. All these people that typically didn't associate are now associating together, and it's creating all this conflict around the law. So they're hanging out. They're having their potluck, right? And they're, they're gathering together, and A through M brought salty, and N through Z brought sweet, and they're hanging out. But here's what happens. You know what happens? Peter decides to withdraw and not hang out with the Gentiles. Why? Because the law says not to. Because they're unclean. So Paul calls him out on it. He said, what are you doing? You can't do that because when you do that, you're implying that there is this righteousness that can be still found in the law and you're going to force these Jewish customs on these Gentiles. And if we are going to say that in some way this righteousness can still be found in the law, then guess what? Christ died for nothing. That's what Paul says. And he reminds Peter, he takes us on this journey earlier in Galatians. He takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy. He says again, Everyone has fallen short. And if you can't uphold every letter that's written in the book of the law, according to Deuteronomy 27, you're cursed. So we're all cursed. 
But the good news of the gospel is that that curse has been placed on Jesus because according to Deuteronomy 21, cursed is anyone who is hung on a pole. So through his death, through his crucifixion, he takes the curse off of our shoulders and puts it on to his. And so here's the main emphasis that Paul is making through Galatians. He is saying, listen, if you think righteousness can come from the law, then Christ died for nothing. If you think you can be justified through the law, you alienate yourself from Christ. And so the point is, listen, your conduct does not justify you ever. Now let me be clear. Does God care about your conduct? Yes, absolutely. Does he want us to pursue holiness and righteousness and and good? Absolutely. But understand, the way that you behave, your conduct Your morality will never save you, ever. The only thing that matters, right, is they're dealing with this tension. Well, then what does this mean? Paul says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. So this new law of Christ is that I put my trust in this Savior. I put this one who took this curse off of my shoulders and put it in him, and now I express my faith through love. In fact, in 5, what is it, 514, Paul says the, the entire law can be summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. It's unbelievable simple. After generations of all these details and all these rules, now what we have been chosen, the new mark that is put on God's people is to put our trust and our faith in him and then love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the mark of God's chosen people. That's the new law of Christ. And so that's what he's trying to encourage us to do. Now, right next to it, after 514, when he says, this is how you can sum up the law, 515, he gives us a word of warning. Right? He says, so when you bite at each other, when you devour each other, watch out because you'll destroy one another. And essentially what he says is, be careful that if you begin to live in such a way that is absent of this love, it's going to destroy you. And so before we get to 6.2, before we get to Galatians 6.2, let's, let's think for a moment about this word of warning. Right? How do we be mindful of not becoming a community of faith that is absent of love? Right? How do we make sure that we actually press into this, this call to love one another well? Right? So here's what I want to do. If, if you want, you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of use it as a guide. Because 1 Corinthians 13 serves as a wonderful metric of love, isn't it? And it needs to be a passage that's not just read at weddings. Right? It's a great time to read it, but it needs to be beyond that. And it gives us this wonderful picture of what love really looks like. And so I want to use it, but I want to use it in light of this word of caution that Paul has just given the community of faith, right? Don't, don't bite at each other. Don't, don't harm one another. Don't destroy one another, right? Choose love. The absence of love is going to destroy you. So when you begin to read through 1 Corinthians 13, I'm just looking at verses 4 through 7. Here's what we've got to be careful against. We have to be a place that maintains patience, The moment that we become a a, a group or a collection of people that loses patience with one another, right, all of a sudden you get a little bit more irritable at this person or that person because of their personality or because they keep doing this or because because they keep doing that or whatever it is, we cease to be a place where people find love. And it's harmful, it's destructive, right? When, When there's no longer kindness, just basic decency, 
right? And we, we decide to set aside our Christian beliefs so that we can level an attack because of somebody's political ideology or because of somebody's habits or their, their lifestyle. And now we're going to just put kindness aside and we're going to choose rudeness for whatever reason. Then we destroy ourselves, right? We, we can't live in such a way. We can't envy. When we cease to be able to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of others, Right, when all of a sudden we start looking around, we say, well, gosh, I don't have that job, and I wish I had that family, and I wish I had that sort of success, and we can't celebrate with one another because of envy, we cease to love each other well. Right? When we begin to boast because of our accomplishments, we walk around and we seek attention and accolades, look what I did, look at what God's doing in my life, and we, we kind of carry around this arrogance, and it, it, it destroys the community of faith. Right? When, we, when we begin to keep a record of wrongs, if you keep on going there, right? how many grudges do you hold with people in your life? I'm never going to be their friend because on July 8th, 2002, at 11 a.m., you know what they said to me? They did this. And we keep these records of wrongs, and it, it destroys the body of Christ. We delight in evil. Right? We gather together with our Christian friends, and we engage in conduct that is anything but Christ-like. Right? We do things that we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We joke about things we shouldn't joke about. But it's okay because we're all believers here. When in reality, we're just delighting in evil. That is not love. Right? Love rejoices with truth. Right? When we fail to trust one another, when we fail to hope with one another, when we fail to protect one another, it destroys the community of the saints. So Paul says, watch out. A failure to love your neighbor as yourself is going to destroy you. And so press in to this call. Make sure you see it as significant, as important as it is, which is what ultimately leads to chapter six. He begins to give us practical ways to demonstrate our love. The first is, man, you see somebody falling in sin, restore them. Right? Don't don't stomp on them, don't ridicule them, don't ostracize them. Restore them and do it gently, do it carefully. And then verse 2, carry each other's burdens. You want to know how to love your neighbors yourself? Carry each other's burdens. And so in order for us to really embrace this teaching, let's think for a moment about burdens. And I want to be careful with how we define this because a lot of times that word burden can carry a, a very negative connotation, right? Like, oh, that person's such a burden in my life and, and we kind of want to rid ourselves of certain burdens. And, and I want a simpler, a little bit of a purer definition this morning, okay? Burden in its purest form means weight, right? Like, like a weight that you carry. It's a hardship, okay? And so I want us to think for a moment, what is the weight that you're carrying into 2019? What, what's the burden? What's the hardship that's on your shoulders? Because we all have them. Is it related to family dynamics? Is it the burden of finances? The, the stress of, of being able to pay off a debt or finding a better job or, or relationships? What, what's the weight? What's the burden you carry? The first step that we have to take to treat 6-2 meaningfully is to identify the, wor- the worries and the burdens that we carry within our own lives. But then I want us to press a little bit deeper and figure out what is really the, the origins of that burden. And so, so first, let me just give you kind of a synopsis. I came across this ar- article in Psychology Today that was written in 2017 
that <coughs> to me, I think, paints a really comprehensive picture of, of burdens and the different types of burdens we carry. So let me read to you this, this introductory paragraph that they have in the article, and then I'll, I'll summarize for you what the article's main finding is. Here's what it says. It says, our lives are filled with many challenges. All of us struggle with personal problems such as stress, anxiety, depression, self-doubt, addiction, and worries about our health, finances, and future. Our relationships with our partners, children, and other family members are often riddled with conflict. Our relationships with our friends, neighbors, bosses, and coworkers are challenging as well. Society heaps on additional concerns in the form of crime, violence, economic problems, prejudice, political discord, terrorism, and environmental issues. Happy New Year, right? I mean, but seriously, here's, here's the point. Everyone has burdens. Every single one of you in here, I don't care your age, I don't care your circumstance, you have a burden. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's from society, but we're all carrying burdens. Sometimes it's all three. And so what the article does is it takes us on a journey and says, what's the common denominator? What drives it? It's an interesting conclusion. Essentially what the author says is that what all these things have in common more often than not are humans. That a lot of times we are the source of other people's burdens or our own burdens because we have this innate tendency to be very self-focused. Okay? Now I want to, to explain that for a moment and I want to be very careful in how I'm explaining it because I think this is important. Here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that if the burden you're carrying right now is, for example, related to your health, and it's cancer, right, that the reason you're struggling with that is because you're just being selfish, right? You're too focused on yourself. I'm not saying that, right, as if God doesn't want you to be focused about your struggle with with cancer or some serious, that, that is not what I'm saying. Here's what I think we can take away from an observation like this. At the core of every burden and every concern, this self-focused tendency is this question that every single one of us wrestles with throughout our lives. We don't always articulate it, but here's the question. Do I matter? Do I really matter? I got this cancer diagnosis, and now all of a sudden, the frailty of life has come crashing at my door. Does my life really matter? matter. And I hit my knees and I beg my God to take away this disease, to take away this diagnosis, and it's not going away, so do I even matter to him? And now I've had to share this news with my friends, with my family, and I'm seeing how do they respond, and do do I matter to them? Do I really matter? Maybe it's not cancer. Maybe it's one of these other things, and it's, it's, it's finances. Right? Do I make enough to justify the significance of my life? Right? I, don't, I don't have the spouse that they have. Do they matter more than I do? Look at all that they're getting. Is their life better than mine? At the end of the day, so many of these burdens are driven from this, this heartfelt, gut-wrenching question that we all carry as humans of trying to understand our worth and our value. Do we matter? In the un compromising, resounding answer of the gospel is yes. You matter. But we have to receive that answer very carefully because the deceiver 
is going to whisper and lead us astray in such a way to where the real pitfall is when we buy into the idea that it's not just that we matter, but we matter the most. Right? The deception is, no, 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 no. You'll be like God. You'll know right and wrong for yourself. And so now I get to travel this road with all these concerns, all these burdens, and all these worries, but I'm the one that gets to decide how to handle it. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you matter, but you matter by becoming a child of God. You matter by surrendering and acknowledging your need for help. And that's why Paul says, carry each other's burdens, because it draws us back to the heart of the gospel. Right? That carry carries this idea of to lift, to share the load. And when we actually come alongside people that are carrying this weight and we join them in that journey, we are able to say once again to one another, you matter. <laughs> I see you and I care for you. You matter to me. It's amazing, interestingly, in my mind, that the psychology today says one of the struggles that creates these burdens is that we can be too self-focused. And the law of Christ says stop focusing on yourself, focus on the needs of others. It's interesting how that works out. And so what are the implications when we see a passage that says carry each other's burdens? Well, there are a couple things I want us to dive into for a moment as we kind of transition to the end here. The first is this. You need help. Every single one of you in here, you need help. There's not a single person in here that isn't carrying some form of weight, some burden. You were not designed to travel this road of life alone. And so those voices that come crashing in that say, no, I've got this. I can do this on my own. I don't need to ask for help. Counseling has a negative stereotype associated with it. I don't want to inconvenience this person over here. What will they think of me if they know that I've struggled with this? All those voices are from the deceiver. You need help. And we need to embrace that mentality and not be afraid to ask for it. The second implication, we need to help. We need help, and we need to help. What that means is, is that you and I need to be ready to help shoulder the burdens of each other, right? To reach out and extend that helping hand, and not just to wait to be asked, but to actually to anticipate the needs of others. That's probably my greatest weakness. I tend to wait and just react, but, but true love anticipates the needs of others. And so here's the reality. When we embrace this call to help others, here's the truth. It's incredibly inconvenient. Helping is rarely convenient. So if you're waiting to help people at a time that's right, you're going to be waiting a long, long time. Right? Helping others often requires um, disrupting a family meal or costing you money or a sleepless night, or hosting when your house is dirty. It, it's going to be inconvenient in numerous ways. So we have to embrace the inconvenience of help and still rush to each other's side and say, you know what, I'm going to do this with you because you matter. Right? We have to do that. And so what does that look like practically? Right? How do we extend this help and how do we ask for help in practical, meaningful ways? And especially within the context of this church. Well, a couple of things that I want to put into your consideration this morning. The first is this. We, we have to spend meaningful time together. Right? It, it, it has to be meaningful time. And, and let me just break that down for you. It's got to be more than what you spend from 1030 to 1130, 1145 on Sunday. 
right? If the most you contribute to this community of faith is during this hour, hour and 15 minutes, you will never really be able to live out 6-2. Not the way that it's designed to be. You've got to find meaningful time with people outside of this. And the only way that happens is by making it a priority. I, I, I'm, uh, it's this summer, my family is about to celebrate its 40th annual consecutive family reunion. Right? So we've been meeting on my mom's side every year for longer than I've been alive. And when my grandmother was alive, they would ask her, her friends would say, how are you doing that? Like, how, how are you getting your children and, and their children to show up year in and each out for this reunion? And she would just say, I, they make it a priority. And she was right. We did. We, we would circle the dates and we'd protect them. And can I tell you how inconvenient at times it has been? How many things we've missed here? The long road trips at night, but we do it because it's a priority. We'll never live this out if we don't make it a priority. But when you do, it creates that space, that meaningful time when you can gather together and begin to demonstrate love to one another. And so let me give you some practical ways to do that here. Right, there's two. Um, first, it, that we provide is a Sunday Connect group. Show up earlier on Sunday, nine o'clock. If we're honest, 9.15, 9.20. But around that time. And I realize you may be sitting there going, that's really hard to get here that early. I get it. It's inconvenient, isn't it? But you're never going to create those meaningful relationships without it. Create that space. As we start to implement these discipleship groups, commit to them. Right? Find time outside of this hour and build those meaningful relationships. Now, Sunday Connect groups are designed to be kind of come one, come all, you know, at any stage of life. Uh, discipleship groups tend to be a little bit more intimate and a little bit more focus on on a smaller number of people, but both create options for you to create these opportunities for you to build meaningful relationships with each other. And when you do, spend meaningful time together, worship together, pray together, read God's word together, and you know what? Have fun together. Just have fun. Laugh. Enjoy each other's company, because when you have meaningful time together, you know what happens? You begin to learn about each other. First, you learn each other's burdens, and you start to figure out how you can help carry them. But the other thing you learn to do is you learn how to love each other. Because, you know, people respond to love in different ways. You guys familiar with Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? Anyone familiar with that? We teach it a lot in our premarital counseling. Here's the premise. The premise is people express and receive love in a lot of different ways. And so you need to know your love language. You need to know how you communicate love and how you like to receive love. And he, he offers kind of five broad categories. He says uh, the first could be uh, like acts of service. Uh, could be words of affirmation, uh, physical touch, quality time, gifts. Those are kind of the five love languages. And, and his point is, is that you could be communicating the wrong way to love somebody. And so if you're trying to love somebody in your Sunday Connect group by giving them acts of service, and they're just completely oblivious to it because what they need is a word of affirmation, you're going to continue to be frustrated. But the minute you begin to learn each other and you say, hey, what I really need to do is not go mow this person's yard. I need to take them and have coffee. You spend quality time with them. All of a sudden, you learn how to love each other well. That never happens without meaningful time. So we have to see that as a priority. We have to get beyond the inconvenience of a long commute or a drive or a different time of day or kids that need to go to bed early. We've got to get past those things and actually commit to it. Right now, here's the good news. I actually came across this article uh, this week that was built off of this study uh, that was done at Penn State that said there are at least four things that everybody would see as receiving love, right? So regardless of your love language, here are four things that can happen to make everyone feel loved. Uh, number one, 
have a small child snuggle up next to you. Always makes you feel loved. So that's our plug to volunteer in the preschool ministry, okay? Um, Number two, when your pets are happy to see you, all right? So if you just happen to not have a pet, especially if you don't have a dog, there's at least two families out there that I know of that really need to give consideration to this. You should embrace it, right? I know it's inconvenient. I know it's costly and it's messy, but you know what? You're inviting more love into your home. Uh, Number three, uh, when somebody tells you they love you, right? Say the word. Don't be cavalier with the word. Be intentional with it, but say it. Life's too short to not tell people that you love them. Number four, show compassion when somebody's going through a difficult time. Carry each other's burden. So one thing we can always do, regardless of how we communicate love, is to carry each other's burden. Let me close with this, okay? I want to close with a story that hopefully kind of captures the mentality that I think makes all this possible, okay? And the story begins with um, uh, this guy by the name of Chris Kennedy. Chris Kennedy was a golfer in Sarasota, Florida, and about four and a half years ago, the summer of 2014, his friends issued this challenge, kind of this random challenge that he had to fulfill, and once he did it, he was all supposed to to make a charitable donation to a charity of his choice. And, um, And so he receives and accepts this challenge, and he decides to extend the challenge to some other people in his family, and one of the people he extends it to is his wife's cousin, Jeanette Sinarchia. And the reason he extends it to Jeanette is because her husband, Anthony, was suffering from ALS. And so on July 14th or 15th, I believe on Instagram, we see this first video of Chris Kennedy taking this ice-cold bucket of water and dumping it on his head as he says, I'm going to make my donation to ALS. And because he had extended this challenge to Anthony Cernarchia's family, that whole community familiar with Anthony's plight with ALS embraces it. They take it on, and this challenge somehow begins to overlap with this guy by the name of Pat Quinn, who was also suffering from ALS, and he was up in New York. And so his network responds to it, and then that begins to overlap with this other individual, Pete Frady's up in Boston, who had a much larger network given his connection to Boston Athletics. And all of a sudden, on July 29th or 31st, I think it was actually, There's a video of Pete Frady's suffering from ALS, doing the ice bucket challenge, and from there, wildfire. In fact, the stats have shown that from, I think it was July 29th to August 4th, more than $15 million came in to ALS Association with more than 304,000 new donors. In two months, it was over $120 million. A remarkable expression of people sharing each other's burdens. Right, and having a tremendous impact. But here's what I want to share with you. What I want to share with you is the story of Pete Frades. Right, because here's this young man who in his late 20s is diagnosed with this terrible condition. He's a captain of his baseball team at Boston College. He has all this potential, and all of a sudden he sees these symptoms begin to emerge. He's not as fast. He's not as strong. He's not recovering from certain injuries as quickly. And so he has these fears, and he takes them into the doctor only to confirm that he has, in fact, suffering from ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, where essentially your body just regresses to the point that you become paralyzed. You can't move arms, you can't move legs, you eventually lose the ability to speak, to eat, and to breathe. There's no cure. Two to five years within a diagnosis is the average lifespan. And this is his condition. And I remember being introduced to Pete Frady's story because Tom Rinaldi with ESPN did this featured story on it. I remember standing there in my living room watching it and seeing unfold. And I went back and watched this video this week to be reminded of it. And I was taken aback again because there are all these clips and all this footage of them actually helping Pete sit up in bed. 
footage of people brushing his teeth, people helping him eat and speak. And I'm watching, I'm thinking, there it is again, this question that Pete had to be wrestling with, do I matter? And time and time again, friends, family, doctors, nurses coming alongside, helping him with every movement, every moment so that he could hear once again, yes, you matter. But the response that stood out the most to me was a quote from Pete's dad. Because they're interviewing Pete's dad, right? And he's watching his son, who's in his early 30s, go through something so terrible. And his dad looks at the camera and he said, man, I'd trade with him in an instant if I could. I hate seeing him suffer like that. I'd love to take his place. I heard that quote and I thought, that's it. That's the mentality of Galatians 6.2. That's how you carry each other's burdens. When we look and see what someone else is going through, and we say, man, I would do anything to take your place. And so I'm going to be right there with you. You are not going to be alone. We're going to go through this together. And when we embrace that mentality, you know what it does? It draws us to the feet of the Savior. Because the good news of the gospel is that we have a Father in heaven that doesn't look down on us and our burdens and say, I wish I could take your place. We have a Father that says, I will take your place. And through Jesus, we have this amazing, remarkable truth that the punishment that brings us peace is upon his shoulders and by his wounds we are healed. And so now we hear the voice of the Savior calling. If you're in here today and you carry any weight, any burden, hear him call to you. He says, come to me. You're weary, you're burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. For my burden is light. Give me your burden and I'll give you mine. So when you and I come alongside and we share these burdens together, it allows us to navigate this life and journey to the foot of the Savior and to hear those words constantly remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we get to travel that road together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess our inability to truly demonstrate the love that you desire for your people. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us take those, those shortcomings. Father, the, the, the tendencies that we have to negate and neglect the needs of others and to only focus on our own and help us to, to surrender those things and come alongside one another. Would this church be known for its radical commitment to carry each other's burdens? Father, how that would change how the world sees us. Father, that then they would know that you have sent us, that that would be the mark now that you place on your people, this radical love that we extend to one another. And so help us to do it. If there's anything that gets in our way, if there's anything that creates those obstacles and those hesitations, God, remove them from us. Let us do it with joy. Let us do it with passion. Let us do it knowing that as quickly as we help someone else, we know that they are there to help us. We shoulder this load together. May we do so in a way that brings you the glory and the honor that you deserve. We thank you, God, that we have a Savior that beckons us to come to you.
knowing that his burden is light. And so we praise you for that, Father. And we give you the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.